Hi, everybody. Welcome to another Real Estate Sessions Rewind. This week, episode 338, back in December of 2022, it's Rick DeLuca, regional owner at Exit Realty. Had a great time with Rick. I really enjoyed this episode. I know you will, too. And I think a valuable message today, just as it was for me many years ago in helping agents succeed, because I lived it, was I think as a general rule in this industry, we should do fewer things than most agents do. But the things we do, do them well and do them consistently. You're listening to the Real Estate Sessions podcast, and I'm your host, Bill Risser, Executive Vice President, Strategic Partnerships with Rate My Agent, a digital marketing platform designed to help great agents harness the power of verified reviews. For more information, head on over to ratemyagent.com. Listen in as I interview industry leaders and get their stories and journeys to the world of real estate. Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode 338 of the Real Estate Sessions podcast and the last live episode of 2022. I'm going to take my usual break in December, throw out some some Real Estate Session rewinds, maybe a Real Estate Session shortcut, possibly a couple of those. We'll see. But today, uh, it's Rick DeLuca. Rick is uh, with Exit Realty. He's the Western Regional owner. And we're talking about somebody with nearly 47 years in the business uh, and some amazing stories and some great ideas for all agents to, to embrace, especially when markets go in a different direction uh, or when you're just getting started. So I'm really excited about this episode. Let's get it going. Rick, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very, very much, Bill. My pleasure to be here. Well, I'm I'm really excited. You know, I, I, I checked out a little bit of your story online and uh, it's 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 the perfect guest for the real estate sessions because we get to talk a little sports, you know, which is going to be fun. But then we got to talk a lot, a lot about real estate, especially what's happening in this world today. And I know you've got a lot of experience, so we'll start there. But I, I, I know that uh, you grew up in Los Angeles. I grew up in San Diego. You know that means there's like an instant rivalry, right? Because we were the little redheaded stepchild, never wins anything, and you're L.A. where you guys win all these championships. Tell me about tell me about growing up in L.A. Yeah, born and raised in Southern California in the L.A. area, and uh, in my era, I mean, in the '60s, so it was a great place. You know, great place to be raised. You got the ocean, got the mountains, and you know, and I pretty much lived for sports. I mean, that's uh, that's why I went to school to play ball and date. You know, that that was it. <laughs> yeah, let's talk about that. You, uh, I'm just going to guess that you were playing ball and an athlete, but at a very young age, and it wasn't. You know, we'll, we'll talk about baseball specifically shortly. But I'm just guessing you played a whole bunch of different sports. Yeah, you know, back then, of course, you know, traditional sports, basketball, baseball, football. And yeah. in, uh, in, in all honesty, football was my favorite sport. I loved I was a wide receiver and I, you know, set some records. And I, I just love playing football. And, uh, you know, but then when the season changed, you know, I, I've been I, I caught my first game at eight years old. And the reason I was a catcher, I, I, I think I remember this, is that no other eight-year-old was willing to get behind a plate and get smacked with a ball. So, you know, so I put on the gear, like, looked like a clown probably back there. But, yeah, I caught my first game at eight years old. I caught my last game at 38 years old in fast-pitch softball. Wow. That's yeah. so, First of all, so fast-pitch softball, you're still decked out in all the gear. This isn't slow pitch. You're still wearing a mask, at least some shin guards, I'm guessing. Yeah, yeah, the mask and shin guards, no chest protector, but yeah. I've uh, I've had uh, on my right hand, I've had every finger has been broken at least once, um, you know, because I mean, this is 
I, I never really said this out loud. This is how bright we were. Um, we were taught, you know, in, in the 50s, 60s, and even to the early 70s to catch the ball with your, your non-glove hand with your fist up by so you could so you could cover the ball when it, you know, hit your glove, right? And and so foul tips and stuff just shattered our fingers. And, and uh, you know, we're on a podcast. People can't see it, but, you know, this finger has been broke like four times. And uh, and then Johnny Bench came along in the early 70s, and he put his right hand behind his back, and we all said, well, that's a good idea. <laughs> so <laughs> for 100 years, we had, our, we had our right hand up there getting smacked by a ball. So hey, maybe – Maybe the glove technology got better in the seventies. I don't know, <laughs> but um, that's, that's awesome. I, you know, tools of ignorance. I mean, that's what they call it for a reason, right? It was always, it's, it's a tough, yeah. you're a part of every play, but, but that also means you got opportunities to be nicked up quite a bit. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. I knew, you know, back then uh, again, in my era, it was the quickest way to the big leagues being yeah. a catcher. Yeah. And I could, I could hit the ball and, or at least I thought I could, uh, you know, I hit over 400 in high school and and got got some awards and stuff. And uh, you know, I was very fortunate. You know, got got invited to uh, play some uh, pro ball, which did not last very long because I found out everybody's really good. So, <laughs> yeah, I think I think people struggle with that part of it, right? The jump from from high school to college, from college to pro. I mean, there's some. It's a massive difference. I think people don't understand. Is that kind of where we're going with that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, again, I, you know, I'm not, not bragging, you know, but I was a really good athlete. You know, I had a couple scholarship offers and I had no really interest, quite honestly. And that's a separate story. But, you know, I thought, hey, I can play in the big leagues. And 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 I went to, I'm in the lowest, I was playing rookie ball, right? And, right. and when I got there, I was feeling pretty good. But literally that, that expression we've all heard, men amongst boys, well, I was one of the boys. Hmm. I mean, there were just some guys that were just so far beyond ability wise than I was. It was real evident very quickly that this isn't a, this isn't a future that I'm going to pursue. Right. Uh, it was with the Dodgers too. How fun was that? I mean, even for the short time you were there, it had to be kind of cool that it, it was uh, your, the team you grew up rooting for. It, it was fun. I mean, the, uh, there were two guys that, uh, again, I only played for less than two months, yeah. but I wasn't there very long. And, um, but two guys I met there that they were just, you just watched them play and they were, they were a different world with Steve Garvey and Ron Say. Oh, and, uh, you know, that, that's when it became evident that there's, there's a real division amongst good athletes and great athletes. Yeah. They, they might've only been there two months, but it was because they were going in a different direction. Maybe. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, 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 they didn't have to ride the non-air conditioned bus in Bakersfield in the summertime. So <laughs> that's great. You know, talk about just different experiences. From there, you end up serving in the Navy, right? During the Vietnam War. So this is—is is this the late sixties? Yeah, yeah. I got graduate high school in nineteen sixty-six, and I was still seventeen years old. And you know, of course, Vietnam was going—you know—full force then. And and as I said earlier, you know, I had a couple scholarship offers uh, for one for football and two for baseball. And I just, I just, uh, I really didn't have much direction, quite honestly. I did. I didn't know what I want to do with my life. Okay. And I, you know, I was kind of, you know, old school. I was kind of uh, loyal and, you know, American defend my country and all that kind right. of stuff. And my grandfather had been a, you know, real hero in world war two. And I spent a lot of time with him and in Oklahoma and, and it just inspired me that I just want to join the military and, and play my part. So, I, yeah, I, I joined the Navy a week before I turned 18. Wow. 
So I'm, I'm I'm trying to think back to that time. Was it two, three years, something like that, tour of duty for you, or how how did that work out? Typically, there are four year uh, okay. tours, um, enlistment periods. Except in the Navy, they had what they called a kitty kitty cruise. If you joined before you're 18, it was three years. Ah. So I, I joined for three years. Yeah. Okay. And you, so you come out of there and, uh, and absolutely thank you for your service. I was, you know, uh, in 1969, I was eight years old and even I was yeah. <clears throat> worried and nervous about, you know, where, where things were going. Cause as a kid, you don't know. Right. Um, uh, yeah. But so what was the path after that? There had to be, you know, you, I'm sure that didn't cement you into some path like, oh, this is exactly what I want to do. You came out of there a little um, a little more stronger, probably a little more self-aware, all those things that happened with with that sort of service. What was what was the next step? When I went in, I was pretty immature. I mean, I was, I was young, 17, but I was even young for my age, I think. You know, and I and so you don't have much uh, choice. You know, when you're uh, in the military and in, in combat, I went to Vietnam and that uh, you kind of learn to grow up, mm-hmm. you know. And, and so the things I took out of there were, uh, you know, I guess if there were three or four things that impacted me for the rest of my life, one was I learned responsibility, you know, that not, not only was I responsible for myself, but I was responsible for my my partners as well. Yep. Um, I learned discipline. Uh, you know that you've got to be disciplined. If you if you don't, man, you you're just a fish out of water there. Yeah. Um, it, but I also learned about relationships and how special it can be to form a relationship with it with another man. You know that uh, um, that pay dividends. As I as I left the military, I I knew I didn't want to make a career out of it. I'm not sure it's the downside, but the reality is in the military, the way you advance is not exclusively, but primarily through longevity. The longer you're there, yeah. the more power you achieve. And, you know, I was only there three years and, you know, I went up the ranks a little bit, but it, it didn't, it just didn't set well with me that someone could literally control my life that maybe wasn't as uh, being kind here, wasn't as, as competent as I was in a lot of ways, but they had seniority. Mm. Yeah. That's a, uh... That, that happens in other places too, around uh, workplaces and all kinds of other worlds. And so that, yeah. um, that makes sense to me. So you yeah. knew you were going to do something different. What, what was the first thing you did? Yeah. When, uh, when, when you're, uh, when you go through what they call separation, you know, the last week or so they have all these uh, industries come in and give their pitch, you know, you ought to be this and this and this. And to this day, I look back and I'm, oh, my word. Uh, one I was attracted to was a long-distance truck driver yeah. because they made pretty serious money back then. Sure. <laughs> and, uh, and I said, I don't know. And then through a relative uh, who was a sergeant with the L.A. County Sheriff's Office, um, I, he, he asked, why don't you go on a ride-along with me? So I went on a ride-along with him uh, one night. And that, that sealed it. I said, this is what I want to do. Wow. This is what I want to do. Yeah. So, yeah. So when I got out of the military in, uh, let's see, it was June 1969. In September of 69, I joined. I went back home to L.A. because uh, I was stationed in San Diego for three years. And I joined L.A. County Sheriff's Office. So, what, uh, three months after I turned 21. So I worked wow. for L.A. County Sheriff's Office for a couple of years. And, and uh, I just got tired of Los Angeles. I got tired of... LA changed a lot. It just, you know, and, and not all for the good. 
and I, I, I just want to got to get a clean start. And so I met someone from Reno and I went to visit him in Reno and I, I just kind of fell in love with Reno is small town back yeah. then, a hundred thousand people. And it was just the opposite of LA. And so I knew one person packed my bags and drove my little car up to Reno, Nevada and, and uh, started all over again. I went to work for Reno PD and I was a cop there for five years. I'm just thinking with casinos and stuff, there's, there's probably stories you can't share on the podcast. Just a guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's a, that's another book there. Okay. So. <laughs> so you're in law enforcement now uh, you're up in Reno, small little town, but like you said, kind of a, probably a great change of pace still in California, not, not, not far away from your friends and family and buddies back down South, mm-hmm. but somehow we got to get you in the real estate world. So there's got to be something, yeah. something that happens. Or was there some moment where you said, this is, this is where I want to be? Yeah. You know, it was interesting. It was similar to the military in that there, again, you have someone kind of in charge of your, your work life, if you will, because they had seniority, even though I, I advanced rather rapidly. And, you know, I fell into an opportunity, quite frankly, at least that's what city of Reno called an opportunity. I called it a nightmare, uh, you know, and cause I was brand new. I was 23. No one in Reno knew me prior law enforcement. So they put me undercover, uh, when I went out of the, finished the police academy. And I did that for a year and a half and went through some pretty uh, harrowing times. And, but as a result of that, the success of that undercover assignment, um, I advanced rapidly. And so I, I became a detective at uh, 27 years old, that that was a learning experience itself in that you're overwhelmed with your caseload. You have so many crimes you're responsible for. And it was frustrating. I felt like I was letting people down because they couldn't solve them all. It's not like the movies. It's not like a TV show for 60 minutes. You solve them all. Yeah. And and then uh, kind of getting to your question here, Bill, but it became apparent to me that law enforcement wasn't a good long-term um, decision for me because I became too involved with with the people. And I handle a, uh, handled a homicide case of a 19-year-old co-ed had her throat slit and I found her and I had to tell her parents. And and there again, you know, I, I, I couldn't solve it. I worked on it for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and I, I couldn't solve it. You know, and uh, years later it was solved because of a, keep in mind, it's 1976 and I I picked up a little cigarette butt and put in a, you know, a little Ziploc deal. Mm-hmm. Well, there was no such thing as DNA in 1976. Well, right. about three years ago, they took that little cigarette butt out and ran DNA and they found it was a serial killer who had, who was in prison in California. So they solved it uh, all those years later, 40 some years later. Wow. Um, wow. But where I'm going with that is that I became too involved emotionally with the family, you know, uh, of the victim. And, and you, you can't do that in law enforcement. You know, you, you got to compartmentalize and, and I did to some degree, but not as much as I knew I should. And so for me, the handwriting was on the wall that I don't want to go through this for 20, 30 years. Right. And uh, my best friend, Dwayne and I uh, had a little bit of money and we said, let's buy a duplex. And I don't even know why we thought that, but we went to a guy, Bill Myers, uh, Myers Realty in Reno and, so we want to, somebody recommended him to us. I don't remember who it was. And so we bought a duplex on Buena Vista Avenue and, and uh, became landlords. And I said, wow, I kind of like this. And throughout the entire transaction, the bill kept telling me, God, you'd be, you'd be great in real estate. You need to get real estate. And then years later, I found out Bill told everybody you'd be great in real estate. So you know, <laughs> he was just constantly recruiting people. Yeah. And so I did. I, I went there. I went to the real estate school three times. I quit twice. Oh, you know, I, 
I just quit and I just, eh, you know, and I finally, the, the owner of the real estate school kept tracking me down. So get back in here. So I, I finally finished it. I passed the state exam by two questions, barely passed it. And all of a sudden, you know, I are one, you know, so, yeah. so now I'm a real estate guy, but I wasn't ready to leave law enforcement yet. And okay. so for one year I was a part-time agent and, and made no money at all. No money at all. Very common but story. It, yeah. 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 But it whet my appetite. What little I saw, yeah. I said, geez, you know, this is something I think I could really get into because it is about relationships and, and working in real estate is about discipline, yep. you know, yep. and being held accountable. Uh, and so it kind of fed that part of me. And my dad was real successful in the car business, owned car dealerships in Southern California. He had taught me something when I was 16 years old, working for him between my junior and senior in high school. And, and I talked about all the cars he sold because I washed them all. And, and we had lunch one day and I said, Dad, you sell some. I can't believe how many cars you sell. And he said, yeah, we were very fortunate. We sell a lot of cars. He goes, well, let me tell you something. He said, someday if you take over this business, which was his, his goal, um, he said, I want you to remember this. You got a sales department and you got a service department. He said, your sales department is critical. But if you take over this business, I want you to put the emphasis on the service department. And here's why. If I sell someone a car and they come in for a service and they get lousy service, I will never have an opportunity to sell them another car. Yep. And so I, I remember that, you know, my whole life remember that. And so when all of a sudden I'm in a real estate business, and I'm looking around. I had never gone to college. I didn't have any business experience. I've been a failure as a part-time agent. And I was intimidated. And I said, I'm going to do the one thing my dad told me, and that is I'm going to focus on service. Because that's really all we have to sell. We all charge the same about the money. Come on. Yep. Yep. And we all, we all yep. do kind of the same things. And so if I'm going to compete in this industry, I need to focus on the service aspect. Sean Carpenter, who I think, um, Sean shared a few car rides with you in Ohio, I think, when you were speaking for Cobalt Bankers. Does that sound about right? Back in the- uh, Oh, yeah, many years ago. Yeah, about yeah. 20 years ago, yeah. You talked about- Many, you many, great, many years ago. Yeah. You shared, yeah. He shared a great story with me about you and the, oh. the binders you put together for a listing presentation and how mm -hmm. you had to keep making them a little bit different. <laughs> Do you mind sharing that story? <laughs> well, yeah. You know, again, I fall back on what I said a, a couple of minutes ago. Yeah. There, I, I needed to find a way to separate me from most of the people in real estate. Right. And, I, and I give my dad, I give my dad so much credit for whatever success I achieved in this industry, because understand when I went into business, it was 1976 and the market was hotter than a pistol, kind of like we had 2021. Right. Yeah. And, and I sold 42 houses in my first year. And I thought, man, this is a piece of cake. I get this. I got this all figured out, right? Yeah. And I'm making money for the first time in my life because I've been making nineteen thousand bucks a year as a as a detective, working about seventy hours a week. And I'm making more money I ever made, and, and I'm just having fun. And that lasted for about two years until October 1979, and it's like someone turned the faucet off, mm -hmm. and interest rates got up to nineteen percent. We couldn't give away houses. So where I'm going with that, within six months, I was broke. I, I was your typical superstar agent who thought he knew more than he did. Yeah. And uh, I had enough money to last another 90 days. I actually went back to Reno PD and asked Chief Parker for my job back. And he said, well, you've been gone too long. You have to start over again. I didn't want to do that. So so I called my dad and I said, Dad, I, I got to figure this thing out. You know, I mean, nobody's buying houses. And he said, I'll never forget this. He goes, 
He says, you know, even with 19% interest rates, Rick, I think people are still buying houses. You just need to find the ones that are buying. And I said, okay, well, what do I do? Because here's the message. Because so many people probably listening to this, Bill, maybe they started their career in 2014, 15, 16, and it just went up and up and up and up and up. What I learned firsthand is this. The toughest part about a hot market, if you're not careful, it'll create horrible work habits. Mm. And I got caught with that. I didn't keep in touch with my database. I mean, I'm making sales and I'm on to the next. It's, it's almost embarrassing to admit that. But I was just I was working seven days a week. I was single. I mean, it's, you know, making money and buying Ferraris. And oh, I, had, I was having a great life. But I created some really horrible work habits. And so when the market turned, my dad said, you need to start over again. You need to build this thing from the ground up. And I said, well, what do I do? And here's here's the first piece of advice he gave me. He said, you've been doing it now for a couple of years, so you know the industry kind of. And he said, I want you to take out a, just a legal tab, and I want you to write down for the next few days everything you do as a real estate agent, every single thing you do. Just write down everything you do. And so I wrote down, we do listing presentations, we make phone calls, and we present offers, and we show properties, we hold open houses, and, you know, and the list goes on and on and on. And so a few days later, I called my dad, said, okay, I got my list. And he goes, okay, let's go through it. He said, now here's what I want you to do. Every one of those activities you do as a real estate agent, I want you next to that activity to write down, what does the average agent do? What does the average agent do for each one of those activities? Mm -hmm. I said, okay. And so I did that. And then the next week when I talked to him, he goes, okay. He said, if you're going to make it in this business, you simply need to make a decision to do more than the average agent. And now that you've consciously recognized what the average agent does, at an open house and showing properties and listing presentations, you need to raise the bar and identify what will you do that the average agent won't do. Mm. And then he, he also said this, which was key. He says, don't fool yourself for a minute to think you're going to do more than the average agent in everything in real estate. Right. You pick out the ones that you believe that you can do more. Well, one of them was listing presentations and he, uh, <laughs> I go back to the lunch I had with my dad at 16 years old and I, I'm trying to figure out, you know, here's the guy I live with and we, we had a nice home and good lifestyle and everything else because he was successful. But here's a guy that I had never seen in action until I went to work there as a lot boy. And I told my dad, I said, dad, you sell so many cars. I mean, I, you sell two or three, every one of your salesmen sell. How do you, how do you sell so many cars? And he looked at me and he said, he said, I only show people cars that they like. And I said, well, how do you know what they like? He goes, I asked them. I said, man, I'm brilliant, right? But here's what he said. Here's a direct quote from my late father, Pete DeLuca. He said, Rick, never try to be the answer to people's prayers until you know what they're praying for. Mm. Nice. And so from day one in sales, that was my mantra. That was my intro. What are the, when I went into a listing presentation, um, good friend, total stranger made no difference. I asked them, what are the three or four most important things you want to talk about this evening? Rather than me going in there and here's all the stuff we do. Yeah. And, and it, was a, it was a great way to learn how to sell real estate. Well, one of the things that I learned quickly was that people, when they said there's three or four things, what do, you, what do you want to talk about? Frequently, it was, what are you actually going to do to sell my home? And so I'm sitting there verbally trying to tell people, which just didn't cut it. People are visual. So I created this binder, right? Um, I listened to presentation. I put a lot of work into it, a lot of effort into it. And, and, and I learned this. 
the higher the quality of the physical packaging of your presentation, the higher the quality, the higher the perceived value of the content and the sender. Wow. And when I discovered that, when I was putting, uh, God, man, you were gonna, really going to date me here, but, you know, we didn't have digital photography. I mean, I, I'd go out there, take a picture of the house, drive by, even if it was you know, Polaroid, because I didn't have time to have it developed, right? And then I took the picture and I taped it inside a little vinyl cover thing on a notebook. I mean, talk about cheesy, right? But it was more than the average agent would do. Yep. And then in the, the pages inside were uh, those were all in those little plastic page protectors gave it a little more bulk to the package and i had so much success with something as simple as that that uh, i then began to have a courier service deliver them to the seller prior mm-hmm. to the listing interview whenever possible not always possible and and then i asked for permission i learned the importance of asking if i could have it delivered to their place of employment rather than their home and the reason i did that is that you know picture a courier comes in Hands, uh, you know, the woman this binder, and then people around and go, "What's that?" Oh, we're thinking about selling our house. Here's this agent we're thinking about, you. and they pass the binder around, nice. and so it generated nice. quite a bit of referral business. So, so it all goes back to what my dad taught me: what does the average agent do, and you decide what you're going to do more than average. Still incredibly valuable oh. today. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. Let's let's talk about you know the fact that you 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 picked up a lot of knowledge. You know, when you think about what you did before you were 23, and we didn't talk about everything, there's some amazing stuff in there. For me, it seems natural that somewhere down the road, you are going to become a coach and a trainer, an educator. It just seems like because of all that experience in, in, so early in your life, that eventually happens, right? And and how long was your, how long was, you know, you're, you're kind of out of it now for the most part. How long were you doing the circuit, you know, and, and talking and training and helping? Yeah, well, when I when I went into the business part time, then I went full time, and then within I think about a year, eighteen months, Bill Myers uh, said, "I want you to be a branch manager." So I kind of went to the you know, but I was still big in production myself. Yeah. But I got a real kick out of helping agents in my branch, you know, increase their their success. And then our little branch office outproduced the main office, so Bill said, "I want you to be the general sales manager." Yeah. Um, and so I did that. And then my fifth year in the business, I told Bill, I, you know, I'd like to own the company. So I bought, I bought Bill out. And uh, so I owned the company. We had 34 agents and I built it to 192 agents. And in our, uh, my, my, my claim to fame has little to do with me. It's my agents. But according to Real Trends, we are the number one agent production company in the United States on a production, uh, on a per agent basis. And and I really saw that I I had a passion for helping people become as successful, you know, as, as they could be. And it just was very rewarding. And so when we had the national recognition of that per agent productivity, um, it got the attention you know, around the country. And so people came and said, I want to buy your company. And I figured, you know what, uh, I never planned on owning a real estate company, owning it for 20 years. And, and so I sold it. And but I was too young to retire, um, changed lifestyles. I had gotten married, I had two little boys, and I left Reno, Nevada, and then moved to Bend, Oregon, where I was nobody. And I just loved being nobody. And within a few months, I got bored stiff. And 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 so people started calling in and say, Hey, can you come out and kind of share how you did what you did? And and that's what started it, yeah. you know. And it just kind of evolved, you know, from doing little local things to state and then some other countries. But I will say this, Bill, I, 
I was never like a coach coach, like a Brian Buffini or something like that. Um, I enjoyed immensely introducing people to some concepts and giving them tools. And then I worked with them and people got my material. I felt an obligation to them. So I coached them for 12 weeks, but yeah. not ongoing. Let me get you started. Let me kind of get you going in the right direction, both experienced agents and newcomers. So, so, but I had a real passion for it. I just immensely enjoyed people achieving what they wanted to not everybody, obviously, but reaching levels of success that maybe they didn't envision for themselves. It was a real passion. I just enjoyed it immensely. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's, all, it's like you help people create a habit, right? That we hear all the time. You got to get over the hump, right? And, and people will start something and stop, start and stop. Maybe you're pushing them through three months made a big difference in the way they had success. Yeah. yeah and I think a valuable message today just as it was for me many years ago and helping agents succeed because I lived it was, I think as a general rule in this industry, we should do fewer things than most agents do, but the things we do, do them well and do them consistently. Mm -hmm. This is an industry that stretches people too far. We, we get sucked into that trap thinking we have to do everything. And it goes back to what my dad taught me, which of the things are you going to do more than the average agent? Don't fool yourself to think you're going to do everything more than the average agent. Yeah. So I, I kept that mentality with me throughout my entire career. Yeah. You touched on it earlier. Is there anything else you want to add to the, to the commentary about what we're looking at today, right? We're recording this uh, just before Christmas, 2022. We went through a couple of years that nobody predicted in March of 2020. <laughs> I don't know anyone who thought it was going to be like that. And now we're looking at something that's going to, it's going to be a correction. It's going to be that thing that always happens in real estate. You know, you can't just keep going up and up and up and sales just can't continue to climb at the crazy rates they were. We're going into something different. So what would you, what would you say to agents listening to this that like, here's what you want to do to prepare? Well, for those people that have been around, you know, for a while, like I have, we've seen this movie before, yeah. right? Yeah. And, uh, you know, yeah, we are, we're already well into the correction. Mm -hmm. Things have slowed down dramatically. And I foresee that they're probably going to be this way, at least for the first half of next year. Here's, here's what I'll tell people, because I have been through markets like this. Uh, this is the third time been through a market like this. Mm -hmm. The number one thing that happens in this kind of a market is it'll, it'll wreak havoc on your confidence. It, mm. it just takes the knees right up from under you. It, it begins with, and, and I don't want to lay blame anywhere, but it begins with news media who will jump on a story about layoffs and interest rates and, you know, inflation and all the negative, all the negative things that seems to be what happens with news media. And then that news media impacts consumers and consumers start talking about it, worried about, oh, my gosh, what are interest rates go? Oh, I should have refied when it was 2.75. Now it's 7%. You know? And so consumers get caught up in the frenzy. And then that feeds off into real estate agents. And they start talking about, oh, my God, this is horrible. You know, 2021, so over 6 million sales this year. It's going to be, you know, 5 million. And, and, and it just manifests itself in this giant ball of negativity. Yeah. Well, when you're surrounded by negativity, it, it's, it's almost impossible to escape having it erode some of your confidence. It's just, you begin to question, my gosh, how, how bad is it going to be? Is this going to be another bubble, right? And all the, and we won't go into detail, but all the factors are in place. It will not be another bubble, but it is a, it is a serious course correction. Yeah. And, and, and so people get caught up in it and it starts banging away that, that, that confidence. So my message to people 
you know, right now I've got over 700 agents I'm responsible, you know, in the Western United States. And, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get the message across. Do anything you can to maintain your confidence, to increase your confidence. If the market's down, here's the first message. You need to know the market. You need to know it. You, you can't just kind of go with your gut. If the market's down 17%, then know it's down 17%. If the market is down 3%, no, don't get caught up in, in hype, all right? Yeah. Because you've got to be what I've called for years a proven source of real estate information. It is, it's more important in this kind of a market than ever before that buyers and sellers, consumers out there can depend on the information you convey to them. And if you're going to convey information, it had better be accurate. So don't get caught up in national things because I've got seven states overseas. Some states are going to get hit harder than others. And so you've got to know your local market. So as basic as this sounds, Bill, when I hired a new agent, the very first day in a real estate career, I told them, here's your responsibility today. Here's the one thing you are obligated, if you're going to work for me, to know by the end of the day. And tomorrow I'm going to give you a test. And that is, you've got to know basic statistics in the market, Hmm. local market statistics. And I'm not left brain, I'm very right brain, but I'm left brain enough through my own experience to know if you know a handful of stats and you use them in dialogue and conversation, if no other benefit, it gives instant credibility to you from the people you're speaking to, and it raises your self-confidence. So not to be too basic, but here are the four stats I've told my entire career people need to know like the back of their hand. How many listings are on the market today, residential? How many listings on the market today compared to a year ago? What is the median or average sales price today compared to a year ago? What is the average market time today compared Mm -hmm. to a year ago? And then fourth, how many months of inventory do we have right now compared to one year ago? Wow. If you wow. know those four basic stats, like the back of your hand, you will begin to use them in conversation with people. And it just it just shouts a message of confidence of why people that should trust in you. It begins with something that simple. Wow. Yeah, you, you mentioned your role. You're, you're a, a regional owner with Exit Realty on the West Coast. Part of that for you is, is definitely fielding questions about Exit Realty, right? And having conversations yeah. with people. If you don't mind, yeah. give, me, give me some of the most common questions people ask you about what you're doing at Exit. Yeah, probably the most common thing. So again, it's been a little less than three years I've been with Exit. The most common question I get is, well, where does the name Exit come from? What, what is that about? You know, and uh, right away, I never even listened to Steve Morris, the founder of Exit, and uh, one of his uh, his uh, speeches on how he came up with the name, which I found fascinating. Off the top of my head, I said, because Exit, we provide an exit strategy for buyers and sellers to exit their current situation, either buying a home or exit, you know, their current home to get on to where they want to move. Um, you know, then listen to Steve Morris. It's if every commercial building in the United States has an exit sign. They're required to have an exit sign. And it's, it's the most visible sign we have in, in this in North America. And, and so why not use the word that everybody's exposed to almost on a daily basis? And so I get that yeah. question all the time. Where does this exit thing come from? Yeah. Right. Uh, and, and then then the other question I get, because I talk to potential offices. I just talked to one before our, our uh, podcast here, brand new office in Arizona I just brought on. And. They say, 
what's unique about exit? Why did you, after 40 plus years, why did you choose exit versus other opportunities perhaps you had? And, and so I have, I have five must-haves. I had five boxes to check on who I was going to finish my career with. And without going through all of, you know, technology and support and training and that sort of thing. But the last one was a unique business model. Hmm. So when people ask me about exit, why is exit different? I've seen every business model out there and I'm not poo-pooing any business models. Good for them. But what I liked about exit's business model is it was so simple, so straightforward. You don't even need a calculator to figure it out. You know, we're not a multi-level marketing thing, but if an agent does a deal with another agent and they're impressed, um, I tell them, tell the, that co-op agent, hey, if you're ever thinking of making a change, then I hope you consider us at exit. That's it. That's all you do. Yeah. You don't drip yeah. campaign them. You don't hound them. You just say that. And if someone's interested, you introduce them to the broker. And if they if they end up coming to work for the exit, I'm the quote sponsor. And now I get 10% of the gross commission every time they do a deal. So we, you know, I just went to the convention a few weeks ago in Florida, uh, first one, three years because of COVID. In a, they recognize people that in their residual sponsor bonus money, I was blown away. I had no idea because I'm still relatively new. There were people on the stage that had made over a million dollars in just residual bonuses wow. from agents they'd sponsored. So, so that's the kind of questions I get. You know, what makes exit different? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I love it. I was at that same conference and we didn't get a chance to meet because Bob called, you know, hooked us up afterwards. But yeah, that was Amelia Island. That was a gorgeous resort, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> that was a lot yeah. of fun. Yeah. Um, look, I, I get, I'm watching the clock. Rick, I'm going to ask you the same final question. You kind of addressed it a little bit a second ago, but we'll see if you've got something else in you. What, what one piece of advice would you give a new agent just getting started? Yeah, no, it's, it, it, it's, it's a message I've said my entire career. And that is, I did a I did a I did a podcast some time ago with Brian Buffini, and uh, I worked with Brian for like four years. Did a lot of management stuff for Brian. I think the world of Brian Buffini. Yeah. And Brian had a series of questions, and he got to the end. He goes, "Hey, we got time for one more question." He goes, "What's the number one thing you've learned in your career?" Hmm. I'd never been asked that. I'd never asked myself that. I, I didn't even hesitate. I said, "You know, Brian, you know the number one thing I've learned in real estate. It's this: the higher your confidence goes." the higher your production goes with it. Hmm. They're a mirror image. So my strong advice to people new in the business, anything you can do to build your confidence will make you more successful in real estate. And that that's a that's a wide open door there. Yep. So you 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 know you you go to the net and you listen to you listen to trainers and you take advantage of the opportunities. You know a handful of statistics Anything you can do to build your confidence will pay huge dividends because without that one element, uh, your career is at risk. And this is the kind of market that will shake your confidence. Rick, if someone wants to reach out to you, what's the best way for them to do that? You know, probably the best way is uh, my, my email address. It's rdeluca, D-E-L-U-C-A, rdeluca at exitrealty.com. So, yeah, I'm happy. and I'm, you know what? Exit Realty, yes, that's my passion now. I got seven states own. But the truth is, Bill, I've been doing this so long and I've been a coach for so many years and a trainer and a mentor. I don't care who somebody's with. If they just want to ask a question, if they want me to send them something, I'm happy to do that. Really, it's not just for exit people. I, I think I think it sounds corny, but the truth is I look back on my career, given my background 
and maybe the success I've achieved, it seems the least that I, the least I should do is to help anybody in this industry that's been really, really good to me. That's not a bad way to go through life, Rick. That's, uh, that's very cool. So thank you so much for your time today. This, uh, Bob was right. This was going to be amazing. It absolutely was. And uh, continued success and good luck with uh, everything you're doing out there in Bend, Oregon. Well, thank you. I appreciate, uh, appreciate the opportunity to share some thoughts with you. Thank you for listening to The Real Estate Sessions. Please head over to ratethispodcast.com forward slash RE Sessions to leave a review or a rating and subscribe to The Real Estate Sessions podcast at your favorite podcast listening app. <laughs>